you know, I moved to New York City to pursue music. So in that chapter of my life, I was pursuing it full time. Um, wrote a lot of songs for TV shows and commercials and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, as I've sort of evolved and, and really walked this journey now for almost 10 years, um, I've sort of rediscovered what I would like to get out of this process of being an artist and producing work and engaging in that moment also, which sort of actually ended up turning into the theme of the film that I've just produced, which is the doing of the thing is the thing. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Brie Noble. Brie is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Brie's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Brie is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. Hey, this is Brie Noble, and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, where we talk about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. Today on the show, I've got a fantastic interview with Lindsay Cat. She was introduced to me by one of my friends in the music industry world, Dee Grant Smith. Thanks to you, Dee, for introducing us. And um, she's just an amazingly... Um, creative, heart-centered, spiritual almost artist in that she's really focused on art for art's sake and the experience of actually creating the art and enjoying the process and being present during the process and not just being focused on the finished product. I love that perspective and I have to admit it's something that I sometimes lose track of because I am so focused on the business side and wanting to make sure that that art is getting out into the world and that people are able to consume it. But you don't want to miss out on that spiritual experience of creativity while you're creating the art. So I think that you guys will really be inspired by that. But as well, she definitely does talk about the practical side and how she got to where she is now and is able to do a lot of different really cool artistic projects and make things a reality that she has in her head by getting a lot of people on board. And she really does focus a lot on her artistic community and rallying around the art. So I'm gonna get to that in a minute, but first I do want to mention that we recently opened up a Patreon campaign to help support this podcast. We do a lot of work behind the scenes to create the show notes for the show, to create a lot of really cool assets that go along with the show, to promote it, to get our guests, to you know have all the equipment and the hosting and everything we do to make the show happen, that I felt it was time to open up a Patreon to allow you guys to give back. I know many of you have said, how can I support you? And so I wanted to offer this opportunity for you guys to give back to the show, those of you that have really benefited from our, you know, over 110 episodes now. And so you can do that at patreon.com slash femmusician, patreon.com slash F-E-M-U-S-I-C-I-A-N.com, femmusician. We have set up some really great benefits that go along with the different levels. So definitely go to patreon.com slash femmusician and see if you would like to be a patron of this show. 
Now let me tell you a little bit about the artist, Lindsay Cat. Lindsay Cat is a performing artist, musician, painter, thinker, tinkerer, photo taker, hugger, doer, dreamer, director, lover, writer, and producer, still deciding and ever-changing. Since the airing of her first music video on MTV Logo, her music has been featured on shows such as ABC's Switched at Birth, Castle, Being Human, Alias, and The Real World, as well as advertisements for Loft, Macy's, and Polaroid. Lindsay's music combines rich vocals and thoughtful songwriting with an eclectic mix of humor and fun. Embracing both the upbeat and pensive, she writes what she feels and invites her audience with authenticity and joy into her strange, beautiful world. Here's my interview with Lindsay Cat. So that's a little bit about Lindsay Cat. So Lindsay, is there anything about you on the more personal level that's not in your bio that's maybe really interesting, unique, quirky that you should tell our audience about? Well, I, I feel like my life has kind of been a series of unusual circumstances that are un, untypical that I, you know, toward, of other stories that I've heard. Um, but I'm one of seven kids. I grew up in Montana. Uh, I lived in Mexico until I was six because that's where my dad went to school. And my grandparents still lived there. So we would go there for summers and travel back and forth. And so we had kind of a on the road homeschooled sort of avant-garde way of living even in childhood. So that's something that, yeah. A lot of people don't know about me. Wow, that is interesting. Well, how, so how did you get started in music then, in that avant-garde lifestyle? Well, my family was sort of inherently creative, I think, by nature. My, my mom is a brilliant critical thinker and also very creatively expressive in many elements of her life and really imparted that uh, joy and excitement around those things to us as kids. Um, and then when we didn't, you know, maybe necessarily resonate organically, uh, she forced us all to, to take an instrument. <laughs> so we were all sort of forced to take, to pick one instrument and then take lessons on that instrument. So my sister Rhiannon chose the guitar and I chose piano when I was like, I think, uh, 13 or 14. And, uh, yeah, after a couple of months, uh, my piano teacher at the time, who is an incredible person and very, very, uh, I think, well-intentioned, uh, called my mother and maybe recommended to her that perhaps I would enjoy a sport instead. <laughs> and, <laughs> essentially, yeah, it's essentially fired me from piano lessons. <laughs> um, and, and then, yeah, so then I became sort of re-interested in music again later, uh, just kind of tinkering around. And I because th- I think, um, as I uh, sort of mentioned to you before we started, I suffer from dyslexia, which I think is part of why I had such a struggle trying to study music in a traditional way. And so I had sort of kind of quietly in the sanctuary of my you know, little bedroom, sort of just tinkering and figuring out with my brain and sort of the anomaly of my brain, like how, how to figure it out and how to make it work uh, through writing songs. And so I had started at that point and just kind of that arced uh, and leaked into other elements of my life musically. Mm, that's cool. I I always wonder what's going on in my daughter's bedroom behind closed doors. (laughs) I have a 14-year-old, and I always think, if only I could be a fly on the wall and know what she's doing. Magic. Magic. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) 
I didn't say they were very good. I didn't say they were very good songs. <laughs> oh, yeah. I definitely did that. I did the writing the three chord song and thinking it was <laughs> you know. So yeah. uh, at this point, you know, do, did you, do you consider yourself a full-time musician? And how did you get to, you know, between like starting music when you were a kid to now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, I've been through different chapters of that, I think, and I think even different ways of feeling about that and what it means to me um, in terms of labeling and identity and uh, how I want to spend my time. Um, because I think the only label that I've really felt comfortable uh, sort of self-identifying as is as an artist. Uh, and sometimes I find that, you know, that manifests sort of in a musical setting and a musical platform. And sometimes it's a painting or a film or some, some other form of creative expression. And so, yeah, I would say, um, you know, I moved to New York City to pursue music. So in that chapter of my life, I was pursuing it full time, uh, wrote a lot of songs for TV shows and commercials and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, as I've sort of evolved and, and really walked this journey now for almost 10 years, um, I've sort of rediscovered what I would like to get out of this process of being an artist and producing work and engaging in that moment also, which sort of actually ended up turning into the theme of the film that I've just produced, which is the doing of the thing is the thing. And, you know, which is to say that, you know, being in that moment, this time that we're spending right now, uh, that's where I want to stay as often as possible. And it's a difficult and challenging concept sometimes, but I feel like even as an artist, like that, that messaging is what's resonating everywhere for me. Ah, yeah. It's, it is so hard to be present in the present. You know what I mean? We're constantly like pushing to finish the thing instead of enjoying the creation and the process. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's so, it's so silly because eventually the thing's going to be finished and you know, you'll have lost all that time and possibility that could have been a joyful, you know, engaging experience because we were all stressed out, like, you know, and, and worrying. And the other thing is, you know, as it comes to titling and labeling, I, I really deeply feel that people should gravitate towards titles that feel great to them and feel comfortable to them. And for some people, that's, you know, a distinction between being a full-time or part-time musician. For me, it, it, I, feel, I feel, feel like it's less than that. Um, for me, it's more like, I see the way that I spend my time and do my work and live my life as kind of a fully dimensional, comprehensive person that's eclectic and has a mixture of interests and skills and limitations and styles and habits. And, you know, how I apply them is often in artistic forms and that that, you know, sort of trend is full time and that, that I do generate my income doing that. But, you know, in terms of what it means, you know, whether I'm working a full time, I just, I don't know that there's a right or wrong way to do this as being a musician in terms of monetizing it. And I hear that conversation come up a lot with so much stress with other friends where it's like, okay, well, like, how do we, like, am I, am I professional enough yet? It's like, well, are you enjoying your time? Are you, what are you getting out of your work? Are you paying your bills? Are you doing your, you know, the creative ideas that you dreamed up and then, you know, breathed into reality? Where are you getting your satisfaction? You know, are you enjoying your life? And that's been the more interesting question to me lately, I think. Mm, yeah, that's, a, uh, sometimes I can be so practical. You know, I always I ask on this show, like, you know, tell me about your streams of income and stuff, because I'm trying to help artists that struggle. Um, well, no, I, I actually I, appreciate I like, that very much. <laughs> I, I like your perspective, though. I mean, it's a good point. Like, I don't want to just 
make this sound like, you know, we're just robots and there's no like feeling and emotion and, and satisfaction involved in what we do. It's not well, just filling out and- a part of where our income comes from. Absolutely. And, you know, I joke sometimes that I'm half hippie on my dad's side. And, and I also don't want to suggest that, you know, we aren't business people and that we shouldn't advocate for ourselves or our incomes or, you know, you know, look for the avenues in which we can cultivate revenue and figure out, you know, where the money is going and how people are engaging in commerce and how we can best exploit and leverage the successes that we've had with the work that we've done in order to move our careers forward. I think that's all really relevant too. And that we should all, as a community of artists, talk about how hard it is to make ends meet, uh-huh. how many different kinds of jobs we have to work to make it happen, how it's not just an easy overnight, oh yeah. You know, I t- tell people all the time, yeah, I won a lot of awards. It's very glamorous. I still do all kinds of work in all kinds of ways, sometimes because it interests me and thrills me, and sometimes because it's Tuesday and rent is due. <laughs> you know, and, and it's, I think that is important too. So with the sort of philosophical, more idealistic realm, I do think it's important to to hold both parts of the conversation as relevant and important. Definitely. So we kind of glossed over like, you know, you went to New York and you started writing for commercials and all that. Like we have a lot of gaps. (laughs) People that are just starting out that listen to this show. So I'd love to find out how that happened and how you got your foot in the door and everything. Absolutely. It's a great question. Well, I, yeah, I really just embodied the cliche. I made a decision. I dropped out of school. You know, I think I had like 250 bucks in my bank account and I just, you know, the suitcase and the dream. And I didn't know know anyone here. And I had set up a nanny job um, for myself here and ended up working as a nanny for a couple of years and just uh, really funded my, my first record independently, wrote it, uh, co-produced it with Mark Turgiano, who's this excellent producer uh, in New York. Uh, who's also produced for artists such as Ingrid Michelson and I think Rachel Platten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, really great guy and a really talented producer. And yeah, I had um, basically just kind of scrimped and saved and handed every paycheck over to the producer and said, help me make my record. And he already accommodated me to help me kind of do that um, because he cared about the work. And I think I did a lot of things right in that time. I stayed really open uh, to people's advice. Um, and I also asked a lot of questions. I didn't fall into the trap of trying to pretend that I knew more than I did. Uh, and that was very helpful to me because that ego death allowed me to find the actual answers to those questions. <laughs> and and it, also, it also allowed magic to happen where, you know, it maybe was a little unexpected. Like I remember the process of, you know, I had written these handful of songs. I was a baby. I think I was 19 or 20 when I first moved here. And you know, I had this handful of songs. I knew I wanted to produce them. I knew how. I had a general sort of vision, but I had really no idea what that process looked like. I never studied audio engineering. This was, you know, the internet was e- even a different time then, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was this interesting process of trying to figure out how to know what you don't know. You know what I mean? Like, because there's the things that you know and the things that you don't know. Like, I know I don't know rocket science. And then there's that weird gray area of like the things you don't know you don't know, <laughs> which is, is basically what I fumbled through in all the early parts of my career. So I remember this one phase where I was trying to get educated about mastering, audio mastering. And I, I remember being like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and having this moment of like, gee, like, you know, I don't know anything about this field yet and trying to get that information. And so I just kind of Googled like audio mastering and I was like, okay, well, who's the best? And like, who's the worst? 
And like, what can I afford? Like that was what I was, that was the math that I was trying to do. And so in the sort of investigation process, I ended up, you know, looking up this uh, mastering engineer. His name is Greg Colby. Very, very talented, very iconic mastering engineer. And I had to formally apply through his office to get a quote <laughs> um, for what it's going to cost to be. And I just looked at the number and just like, like sunk my head. <laughs> I was just oh. like, like, you know, at that moment of like, nope, like, well, that's what the top looks like, <laughs> like kind of thing. And, you know, sent kind of a funny and also half joking, half serious ask email back to his secretary and said, you know, thank you so much for the quote. You know, unfortunately, like, I'm still at the starving artist level. So, you know, if Greg ever wants to work with a starving artist who can afford, you know, X amount, I kind of gave her my budget. I was like, you know, please, please tell him to give me a call. <laughs> and then, and then the next day he did, he gave me a call and he said, I, I will, I, I'll do it. Like, <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's not being afraid, I think, uh, to, like not, not being so worried about risking that ego bruise uh, to limit yourself to the opportunities that could be there. I guess would be one one piece of advice that I learned that's from starting really out. Really good advice. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think we're so embarrassed about about being green and naive, you know, and we don't want to let people know, and so right. we're willing to do that, right? And we miss so many opportunities, right? To to create space to actually have learning and engagement and magic and excitement, because mm-hmm. we're so afraid that other people will judge us. Whereas if you kind of come in. A, an authenticity of how vulnerable you actually are. I, I've also found people are really willing to help you and really conscientious of that position because everyone feels that tenderness of, oh God, I, I don't know the answer to that question. What do I do now? And and it would be so simple if we could just say, hey, I don't know the answer to that question. What do I do now? <laughs> and see and, and see what someone else has to say. And and we limit ourselves from that because of this ego pushback. And it's I, I find one of the bigger challenges I see with young artists is they feel this need to, you know, there's this rumor of like, you know, if you look successful and, you know, you, you should pretend to be more successful than you are. And there is some truth to that. And I, again, I, I say these things in, in parallel because they're sort of both true, which is that, yes, there's this collective, like, unfortunately, people take you more seriously if they think you're already being taken seriously phenomenon. Yes. But at the same time, you miss a lot of opportunities by not being honest with the people who can actually help you. So what I tell artists is that it should be like onion layers, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got your inner circle of your your community of art warriors who are in the trenches with you making stuff. Those are the people you tell the absolute truth to. Those are the people you say, hey man, like I'm having a hard time making this work. Like, do you have any tools and strategies around that? Like what's been working for you? Because like I'm stuck here. And and see what they say and, and then be the person who when you see someone else struggling with something you've solved already, say, hey man, you know, I, I solved that already. Like, let me, this is how I figured out how to make that work. Like, use your community in symbiosis to help one another elevate, to elevate each other within that network. You know, those are the people I work for for free. Those are the people when they ask me to, you know, move cement blocks because they don't have enough manpower, I say, yeah, sure, I'll be there on Tuesday. <laughs> like, because that's your community and that's who you're building equity in. You're building emotional equity in that community by showing up with a whole heart. And I think that's sort of the magic combination, right? When you've got sort of a strong foundation of art community around you. And then when you've got that outside layer that you need it to impress because of this other sort of grosser phenomenon that can take place, those are the people that you, you know, that you lead with your uh, successes with, that you leverage your successes with. 
that you say, hey, I am credible. Here's why. Here's why you should look at me. Here's why the work I do is valuable. Here's why I'm charging you $60,000 instead of 15. Here's mm. why whatever, it, that's, that's the, you know, the tier that you can look to because those are the people who have the budgets too. You know, right. I, you know when I'm working with independent projects, I'm working on spec almost every time because as a, you know, inherently DIY independent artist, that's the help that has made my career happen. And so by engaging in that process with them, I'm encouraging that process to continue because when you do have enough credibility, then the corporate entities that have the budgets to pay us the salaries that we deserve for this work, we have more access to that. And we have more ability also to help one another have access to that because we have trust built in that community. Yeah, all, by, all boats rise with the tide is so true when artists work together. Mm. I've, in my experience, I have found that to be very true. That is such great advice. So do you have maybe a story that you can tell about a time when you were really struggling, feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm hitting a wall. I don't, I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere with this career. Mm. Maybe I want to just, maybe I should just give up. Like, mm. and, and how you push through that and what you learned. Mm. Well, I don't know that I ever had a moment where I felt that I would quit. I've often had moments of sort of feeling stuck or, or sort of feeling stuck without credible hope, mm. uh, which I think is a really dangerous thing for artists, right? Because there's, I mean, I feel like the idea or concept of having credible hope uh, is a really important one, not just for artists, just for humans. <laughs> and um, I think part of the reason that I got into the arts uh, was because I love the, the connection that it cultivates among people. I love the vulnerability and joy and fun and silliness and seriousness that it cultivates in the connection between people, the maker, the receiver, the engager, all of it, like all of that thrills me. And so when I get into a place where I feel like I don't have access to that, that's usually what triggers that moment, right? And it's usually lack of financing. That's, I, I would say that's the biggest one in terms of woes. You know, lack of financing is a hard one because you're, you're making all these trade-offs to try and figure out how to get your art made. And that's the math that we're all trying to do. And it's, it's a difficult one. And I would say in those moments, uh, what has helped me, I think, avoid any sort of nihilistic approach to things or any sort of gloom uh, is to create my own work. Um, which is actually what I did three years ago when I started this film project. Uh, this was a, I need something to do. And there, you know, I was doing some ad work, but it wasn't satisfying me. In fact, I was working on an ad when I had this concept. The song, one of the songs on the record was originally being started for this ad that I was working on. I was like, no, I'm throwing this out the window, like we're doing something else. And I called my producer, uh, Yaakov, and said, hey man, I've got this idea and I, I really want to do it with you. Like, what do you think? <laughs> and that was it. Like, and from that moment we started. But yeah, I think I would say, you know, we have never been in a better position as art makers to work, to work on the cheap, to have access to technology that we wouldn't have had even 10 years ago. Like the barrier of entry is low to the things we need to create. And so what I say to people who are in that spot is work, you know, work, focus on your work dig into your work, do your work better, challenge your work, you know, it, see what it wants to be when it grows up. Don't boss it around too much. Don't worry about what it does. Just, just work on it because the one thing that I know is part of the formula for success is being indisputably good at what you do. Because once you're indisputably good at what you do, 
people will be asking you because you'll have something of value that they want. And what we do is valuable and people do want it. And, you know, if we're feeling like we don't have access to it, continuing to improve our craft, I think, is one of the best ways that we can fill ourselves back up while we're finding that inspiration uh, to, to keep going and to keep moving forward. And for me, again, I lean on my communities for that. Like, I look to other artists who are on a roll, who are, you know, doing other things and have inspired overwhelming energy and having creative success in a certain area. And I try and say, hey, like, that's incredible. What are they doing? What, you know, what about their thing is exciting to me that I also identify with and celebrate with them and see if I can use that to inspire my own desire to get back out there and get back up and work. And also the flip side to that is then when I'm on a roll, I become very aware that that part of my job is to be that for other artists in my community because mm. we each take our turn on that trolley. <laughs> so I would say that, yeah. And I would say, unfortunately, the bad news is I don't think that cycle ends. <laughs> I don't think it's a fix it problem. I think it's something that, you know, we support each other through as it happens and, and then just try and do our best with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I ask this question a lot of artists and I usually get the opposite answer. I feel like quitting every day, but I keep going, you know, and I mm. think kind of what, what you said in a way, like it, it never stops. Like the feeling mm. that, you know, I don't have this entirely under control. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, that's, yes. But that's just the nature of art, I think. So do you, do you have what you consider to be like a mission with your art? Great question. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, I don't really have a strong answer to this one. I think learning, sharing, and connection, um, I want to make a contribution of something that's useful. I think right now, that's my primary goal is to be of use and service, to create work that is useful for people. And that, how, how would that be useful? Well, for me, the art that's most useful for me is art that makes me think about something that I didn't think about before. Um, again, we don't know what we don't know. Something that opens a door or window for me into a new idea or line of thought or, again, thing, things that you haven't come to on your own yet. Um, could be something that motivates you to go and do something or go and make something. It could be that little spark that re-sparks your own creative energy to follow through on that one thing you've been wanting to do for those many years, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that's part of it. So for me, I think that's really it. Lately, I've been saying to people, uh, I, think, I, I think I saw it on a meme years ago, and it's just stuck with me, but I, I found it to be so profound. But it's the concept of that we are in a rock, on a rock that's flying through space. Like, nobody knows what's going on. There's no winning or losing Nobody's in competition with anybody. Like anything that we're doing as a society is a story that we've made up and decided we're going to go with this time. And that story has looked different for different people in different eras. You know, for the Native Americans, it looked like getting up in the morning and looking for food and taking care of your family and finding a safe place to have shelter. And then they go to sleep and they wake up and they'd make some art and, and you know, participate in all of their cultural uh, engagements. Then they go to sleep. And that was it. There was no tomorrow. There was no something to achieve. They just lived. And that was their style around it. And right now we're living in a particular style. And I think that what's been useful to me is to remember that, to remember that we've made it all up. So our idea of what's successful to us, for me, boils down to how am I spending my time? You know, do I feel peaceful? Am I following my highest excitement? Am I living the life that, you know, when I look 
back on it, I'm going to feel like, yeah, I, I did the things that I wanted to do. I, I got to participate and play in the way that I wanted and work in the way that I wanted and contribute the things that I wanted. And I think that's kind of the lens that I've been kind of looking at it through lately. Now that's not to say that there's not going to be any stress involved because I know that exactly (laughs) in the thick of the stress of like dealing with finishing up the film, which we'll talk about in a second. But absolutely, I mean, sometimes we have to really push, right? It's not all about about right. Like that deep piece, like I'm doing what I should be doing. That's what I mean, absolutely. And well, I think there's another thing that I've been kicking around as an idea that that's been helpful to me and. I think might be helpful to other artists that I've been having in conversations with mostly friends, um, which is this idea that you are who you are as a person, right? You're, and you change and you, you evolve and you go through all these different phases and you try all these different things or you don't, but you're a person and that's your story. If you're Patti Smith, for example, anywhere in Patti Smith's life before she became famous, she was still Patti Smith that is a timeline issue, <laughs> right? So when you're, so this is something I think, especially for people who are struggling or in the dark or having their hardest moment, which we all do. I, I like I said, I've had mine as recently as the last few years. Um, if you can remember, Hey, this is a timeline moment. And if I am always Patty Smith or Lindsay cat, or, you know, insert your own name, you know, if I am always me and who I am is the thing that makes me valuable, not necessarily this one thing that I do, that it makes all of it easier, including the failure. And it, it kind of equalizes the failure with the success because it's all just doing things. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It just, it helps even you out a little bit mm. as far as like there's, it doesn't ha- I mean, there are ups and downs, but you don't ha- you can look at the bigger timeline. Well, there absolutely are. And I actually think it's critical that we speak about them and acknowledge them because as you said, like they're incredibly difficult and it isn't a, you know, mystical, whimsical fairyland out there in, in the art world. It's, it's hard and it's hard work. And, you know, when I say, you know, the people in the trenches, I mean that it's, it's the trenches sometimes and it's some of the hardest work I've ever done. And it's incredibly rewarding and I believe it's incredibly valuable to the world. And, you know, that's why I choose to continue to do it. And I'm so happy that people like you continue to do it. And I'm so grateful that we have this community where we can have conversations like this. Well, so let's talk about the film. I mean, you, you mentioned you started to get the idea when you were working on an ad, how did that Mm. evolve and what made you think like, I could actually do this thing. Not that like, Oh no, I could never do this. This sounds (laughs) too complicated. It's going to take up three years of my life. And how am I ever going to, money and all that stuff. Right. Know? Right. Well, <clears throat> I have had the gift of firsts a couple of times. Uh, my first experience producing and directing something was actually part of my high school thesis. Um, I graduated when I was very young, I think 15 or 16, and did uh, took, took about half a year off and directed a play for our community theater, um, licensed the script for Annie, and we had like a full band and I think a 50 people cast and full sets. And it was my first experience. Um, and I had a lot of help, like a, a lot of help. Uh, but it was my first experience kind of going, oh, you can c- decompartmentalize a large thing and complete that large thing as a series of steps, you know, and it will take you X amount of time. And, you know, the other skill I think that I got to practice at that time was engaging and rallying community and, you know, sort of getting community to participate or allowing community to participate in something which, you know, clearly there was a desire for at that time. And so I had done that from such an early age 
that I applied that to when I produced my record and pretty much any other large scale project that I've ever undertaken, um, I, paintings included. Um, so I often break my work down into a series of steps. And so that part didn't feel challenging to me. Um, I felt a great deal of excitement about the idea. This was actually pre-Lemonade and pre-Florence and the Machine. This, this was before anybody was releasing sort of visual records, wow. um, which, which is not how we branded the film, actually. My concept had actually come from this idea that I had been doing all this work doing soundtracks to movies. I was like, you know, why isn't the record the feature and why isn't a film track to a record instead of a soundtrack to a movie? Flip, I like that. And so that was originally what sparked the idea. And so the concept was to take 10 narrative music videos, each that could work independently on its own as the comprehensive, you know, independent music video. But then when sort of interlocked together would create one seamless feature film that you could watch as one comprehensive movie. And the whole project was called The Avant Gardener. Um, and I had you know, the title and the concept and everything sort of, I sat down and just kind of wrote the whole thing on my computer and like made this phone call to my producer. And I just sort of made him over the phone pinky promise with me that if he agreed to do this, that we weren't going to talk about how we were going to do this. We were going to talk that, about how we were doing this right now. And that was the agreement that we had. And so from that point on, anytime anybody asked me what I was doing, I said, oh, I'm making a movie. <laughs> and, and that's what I was doing. And we didn't have money yet. <laughs> like we didn't have anything yet. And so I had, you know, brought a certain amount of money. And, uh, and then we just started asking people. And, you know, fortunately, uh, Yaakov's father uh, co contributed quite a bit to the film. And my father was able to contribute to the film. Lots of friends and family contributed to the film. So we, did, we just kind of shook our community money tree and, and got that thing funded. And so you didn't do a Kickstarter. You just asked people personally. We sure did. Absolutely. And, you know, eventually one of the things that we've thought about doing is we actually saved and arted a lot of the props in really gorgeous ways mm. and have, have thought about doing sort of after events where we auction some of them off. And because we still do need money, like desperately for post, like we grievously underestimated the amount of money we would need. We went over budget a really long time ago. So artists, don't we? Oh, so bad. So, which, you know, will probably continue to be an issue for me. But yeah, that was the start of the project and, and how it got sort of dreamed into life. So did you have like a goal with this or was it just like, I, this, is, this is in me and it needs to come out? That. I had actually recently had a conversation um, with someone that was really meaningful to me. It was about, I think, four or five months before this concept arose, maybe even longer, where I was having some anxiety and, and artist stress about my work and just not feeling satisfied and not feeling like I was doing the things that I was supposed to be doing. And at this point, I had already had music videos aired on MTV and done other fancy, exciting things, like, and was struggling with that realization of, oh, once you have those fancy things, then what? when nothing feels different. <laughs> and so he, he sat me down and had this beautiful conversation with me where he said, Lindsay, like, you don't have to worry about what happens to what you make. He's like, that's not your job. He's like, you're, you know, and he, he was a spiritual person, is a spiritual person. And, and he said, you know, your job is to create the work that is, that only you can create because you're you and to go and produce that work. And what happens to it is none of your business. <laughs> and it's definitely, to me. And, I, and so honestly, like now, anytime I make anything, I focus on how much that thing delights me and I try not to worry about what happens to it at all. <laughs> because mm -hmm. if I don't do that, 
what I end up doing is polluting the work. And it, that's not true for everyone. Everyone has a different style and I'm only speaking for myself and my process. But for me, it pollutes the work because I end up going, oh, I'm going to do that because people will like that more because that's my natural gravitation. And so unless I have that ego death, unless I have that disattachment from what happens to it, I can't just be in love with the work. And, and that's the part that I found gives me the most joy. Interesting. So does that make it hard to write for film and TV? If you really do yeah. that, right? Not at all. Actually, I love doing that sort of work. For me, that's creative problem solving. That's mm. somebody giving you a handful of details and saying, MacGyver that shit. Because they're saying, <laughs> you know, we need, they, we need 30 seconds of a song with this BPM that sounds like Beyonce and Florence and the Machine. And you go... That doesn't sound alike, but I'll try and make you that. <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, and we need it to include the words candy and mother. And then you go do that. Like you go make that for them. And I find that to be fun and challenging in a completely different way that's creatively satisfying to me. So I, I take those two different kinds of creative expression and, and just hold them separately in my heart. So it's just two complete, I get two completely different forms of enjoyment out of them. <laughs> that is so cool. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> So um, not to, uh, to get too practical here, but I do want to ask my question about, about streams of income because, you know, yes. you've done a lot and, yes. you know, what, are, what do you do on a day-to-day basis to, to keep the lights on? Well, it's so interesting. So different things for different chunks of time for the last 10 years. And it's really, the industry has shifted a lot. I would say if I had to guess every four years or so substantially for the last... 10 to 15 years. And with really like, I mean, the sync fees that you could get, for example, on certain TV placements have dropped almost in half. Mm. Um, And so a lot of the revenues of income that were available, available to me at certain times have shifted into other things and people's budgets are different and people are prioritizing the value of music differently and in different ways. Um, And so it's really shifted a lot. I mean, I worked as a professional film set dresser on a a Chinese feature film in New York City this uh, this past year. Um, that was a six week project that challenged me and almost killed me and was incredible and taught me so so much. Um, that was an amazing experience. That was full time. That was eighteen hour days. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah, it was that. That was a challenging one. Um, I do busking professionally, um, which is, is I think it's a French word. Although, don't quote me on that. Um, I want to say it comes from Buscar, uh, but it's it's for performers who are performing and usually with the intention of receiving donations and usually exhibiting some kind of public display of art or so human statuing is one that's sort of notable. People playing music is sort of notable. I have done uh, three-dimensional replications of famous paintings, mm-hmm. um, one, of, one of which was a Frida Kahlo piece where she cut her hair off, where I cut my hair off and sat in the chair and and did that. And I did that piece for a week. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's interesting. It made a decent living doing that. <laughs> and, you know, I did a piece recently, um, called I feel you, uh, that was right after the election. And it was my reaction actually to, to the election, uh, where I was having a thought process, uh, about, you know, how we got here and having the exact opposite reaction of what I expected to have, uh, which was anger and resentment and bitterness towards sort of other, and was actually a lot of shame and guilt and, and uh, disappointment in myself. Because what I realized was that, and I had both actively and passively participated in this, I think, um, you know, as somebody more on the left, 
kind of disregarded a lot of the a lot of people's voices for many many years, and and really uh, marginalized them and went. <laughs> <laughs> what you think doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because we have the guy in charge. So, you know, and it felt great. And I think part of it felt really justified because, you know, I personally have experienced a lot of persecution in my life from a lot of, and from a lot of those people um, who are on the right. And so for me, it was very complicated. But at the same time, what I saw was this lack of empathy and this disconnection of we've stopped listening and talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And like, we've stopped caring about one another. And this whole philosophy of like, oh, I don't care what people think. I don't think that's healthy. Like, I think, I think it's important to, to not worry what people think. And I think that's different. <laughs> and, yeah. I think that, and I think that care and worry are very different. And I think we need to be careful with the care and feelings of others. And so it, it inspired this piece that I did where I dressed all in white and I had these big white gloves and this, I wrapped white cheesecloth around my face so I could kind of see a little bit. And I had built this ballot box with this white mannequin arm kind of coming out of it, grabbing me in the puhuha as a sort of commentary on Trump's comment. And on the mannequin arm, I had written all of the things that I thought the right was feeling from pure empathy, like all of the good things, all of the bad things, anything that I felt that they would genuinely be feeling and experiencing, I wrote on the arm. And then I invited people, I wrote, I feel on my chest and I invited anyone who passed by to contribute a feeling to the piece about how they felt it. And I think the synopsis was something like, um, you know, uh, sociopolitical commentary on empathy and bridging, uh, how it bridges political divides. Mm. And, and people wrote, hundreds of people, all kinds of things. And it, it was really, and for hours a day, I committed four hours every day for almost a week. And it was really profound. I cried during, there was music playing during, like, and so, and again, like, and people were very generous and very helpful. And like, that's been a way that I, I always encourage people, and again, it's this ego thing where, you know, I, I consider myself to be a highly legitimate and a highly credible artist, and I find the subway to be a completely credible platform where there is a completely credible audience waiting to be unexpectedly moved by you, and that is an experience we're wasting because of ego, because we think it makes us look bad, because it, we think it makes us look like beggars, you know, and that that narrative, I feel like especially as it relates to economics, needs to get squashed because all these avenues of income, you know, and I do light tech and I do, and I still do babysitting occasionally and all kinds of other odd jobs. And, you know, again, like depends on the month. I mean, I've been very fortunate in that I have had a lot of success with TV and film. So I receive a a residuals check. um, I think it's every four months or something regardless. So I, I have like a lever, a safety buffer, um, for me all the time that, you know, I spent 10 years building of equity for that. Um, and, and that's going to change too, because the nature of royalties has changed and the nature of the way we pay for music and uh, consume music has changed. Uh, and I think our job is not to get necessarily pissed off or resentful about it, um, but to sort of lean in and, and reinvestigate and reevaluate how to be adaptive and how the new how the new way is going to work, and how the new thing is going to be, and how are we going to go? Because the thing is, is this cycle has changed and evolved and continued for decades, and it's going to keep changing and and continue evolving. And I think I think it's really up to us to just keep trying to follow that flow and support each other as those changes happen. Hmm. Wow. I mean, you are. An extremely committed artist, I, I have to say. I'm. I'm. Oh God. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. Also, it's not a competition. <laughs> not a competition. But wow. I mean, I don't think I could stand out there for. I mean, 
I, I just, I'm not built that way to want to do those kind of. Well, you know, and that's, but that's exactly it is we do the art that we feel drawn to. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm thank God that there are people that are because I'm moved by those things. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm often moved, especially deeply by the work that I can't do, by the work that I don't have access to. And I do have a lot of ability limitations in what I can and can't do and do have to strategize differently than other people around those limitations. So like, you know, I, I feel like, again, that symbiosis of, of stopping all thought of competition and sort of moving to, God, look at all these tools and resources and great pieces of work to appreciate just feeds that momentum of what we really want and, that, and to help promote us to make the kind of work we really want. I find that to be incredibly true. Oh, wow. It, you know what? It's been an absolute delight talking with you because you, you provide such a different perspective, I think, than a lot of people that I have on the show because you're very, very in tune with your artistic self, which, is, which I think, you know, some of us artists, we've been a little jaded and mm. I think it's really helpful to, to get this infusion of, of mm. love for our art again. So mm. I want to thank you for that. Can you let uh, people know how they can find you online and how they can um, find out more about the, the uh, Avant Gardener? And I love that title, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. And by the way, you've been extraordinarily kind. And thank you so much for having me. And again, everybody takes their turn on the trolley. It's, it's how it works. <laughs> so it's, 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 I always say like today it will be my turn tomorrow. It shall be yours. <laughs> like, and, it, and it really is. Um, but people can find me, Lindsay Cat, um, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-K-A-T-T. Um, that's my handle on most social media. Um, so for example, on Twitter, it's at Lindsay Cat. Um, same on Facebook. I believe also same on Instagram. Um, yeah, at, at this point, I think the, the website is still under renovation, so, but there is a website for the film. I believe it's avant, the avantgardenerfilm.com, but if you Google Lindsay Cat or the Avant Gardener, it should come up as one of the top five um, as well. And I think, that, I think that's the best way to get in touch with us. Twitter is sort of where most of the fanfare hangs out. Oh, that's good to know. And is the film, the film's not released yet, right? When is it being released? You know, we, we don't currently have a release date. And actually, so part, part of the this part we didn't speak about because I became so long-winded and philosophical about the other parts uh, is that the film actually just won the first place grand prize at the Rhode Island Film Festival. Oh my gosh. Um, which, which is, yeah, I mean, a little overwhelming and also, uh, yeah, it puts us as eligible for the Academy Awards, which is mind-blowing. So we, yeah, we had the experience of winning that and then the first place grand prize at the Indie Film Gathering about two days later. So we, we're, we're coming off of a pretty high week in terms of accolades. So we're, we're feeling very celebratory at this point and, and a lot of relief over the conclusion of this very long project. Oh, you should. You should. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can people watch the trailer yet? The trailer is available online. Um, that's on the website as well as the social media links. Um, they should all be sort of right towards the top. Okay. I mean, um, you, you can, can also, you guys should all watch this because it gives you an idea of how we can use media in a different way. As far as I love the idea of the album is the centerpiece and the film is the soundtrack. Absolutely. Well, you know, the interesting part that I found actually really great was that each episode was made in a different style of filmmaking. So one is completely hand animated and one is in black and white. In fact, uh, that one includes this incredible actor named Heather Matarazzo 
who was uh, in The Princess Diaries and Welcome to the Dollhouse and, and many, many other wonderful films. Wow. And she actually directed and acted in that one. And it just kind of like that one in particular really moved me. <laughs> but they are all in completely different styles from one another and somehow like managed to merge together. So I, I'm very excited to see how people receive the work. Mm, me too. Well, obviously we know that critics have loved it so far. <laughs> You've won a couple of awards. Yes, I'm still learning how to take that part in. That's the part of me that I still have pushed back against where I'm like, oh, it's so confusing. Like, I feel so happy, but I also feel so weird. <laughs> but yes, it is, it is nice. You yes. worked hard for it. I mean, I know just our, <laughs> our conversation a couple months ago, you're like, oh, that's stressful. I was, and I, oh, it really was. It was, it, that was some of the hardest I think I've ever worked was right around that time when we spoke. <laughs> well, I'm glad we were able to um, finally get together now that the, the wrap, it's a wrap. It's and, a wrap. You know, and you as well. And thank you so, so much again. You're really a delight. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com with editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.